You're listening to Vardensrama's podcast. Conversations with aliens of extraordinary ability. Hi everyone, this is Rodrigo Gataz, your host for today. I'm part of Vardensrama, this mutual support network for non-EU artists, immigrant artists living in Norway. Uh, we're recording a three-section episode, and today we're going to talk about um, transnational solidarity movements with Tink's Check. Uh, this is within the Practices of Solidarity episodes. There are three parts episodes, so you'll be able to, to find all, all of them online. So Tink's Check, she's an internationalist, activist, artist, and architect. Um, she leads the art department at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. I have to say things like, I'm really excited and thrilled to have you here today. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work and I really look forward to hear your your input on, on the current situation. Uh, a lot of anti-crisis human infrastructures are being built at the moment, especially since the pandemic uh, breakout. Um, people are coming together, artists are coming together. And today we want to kind of like map out where all these possible potentially solidarity movements within the arts and culture are emerging. And I know you have a pretty amazing overview of all these different groups of people um, coming together and really doing amazing creative things and, and really practicing solidarity on every day. So welcome, welcome, thanks. Wow, thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo, for such an amazing introduction. Um, unfortunately, in a podcast, you can't see my blushing and sort of ear-to-ear -ear smile. <laughs> so hope uh, I'm, I'm worthy of such an introduction, but it's really great to be here. I'm happy to have you here, Tings. So where would you like to start? Well, where to begin? Since the dawn of time. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of things, you know, this question of internationalism, something near and dear to my heart and part of a lot of the projects that I've been a part of. And as you mentioned, um, I'm part of the art department of the uh, Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. And it's interesting because it's a social research center. Uh, it's not, you know, what you would think of uh, conventionally, what you link up with, you know, artists or, uh, or collectives or even social movements. But just to give a little background of what uh, what what we are as an institution is is a, a movement led and based um, uh, research space. So it's looking at the world, uh, its questions, its problems, and its solutions from the perspective of social movements and people's struggles. So it comes with a kind of different uh, perspective, let's say. And as part of that wing of the work we do, you know, we say we're engaged in a battle of ideas that's trying to uplift people's struggles. Um, is the wing of culture. Uh, especially visual arts that we work more more in, but it's uh, it's broader than that as well. And how how does this um, uh, help us, or how are they tools in in this sort of battle of ideas? Um, so one of the things I want to share um, and uh, here today is is during the pandemic. Um, you know, many organizations internationally helped formed, and Tricontinental was part of it. What was called the anti-imperialist platform. The was supposed to be a week of anti-imperialist struggles internationally that happened actually exactly one year ago. It was supposed to happen a year ago in May. Um, but what happened was the world really got shook up by the pandemic by that time. It wasn't really possible to organize the mass street actions and, you know, almost feels like old history by now because it's been a year on. So we, we, we started thinking about 
you know, um, how how can we try to mobilize some artists in in our virtual ways um, at that point? Um, and also try to give voice to some of the realities that the pandemic revealed um, that were structural questions already there, you know? Um, like we understood more what is neoliberalism uh, when people couldn't access any public uh, services because public services had been devastated for the last 40 years since that became like the dominant, you know, regime under capitalism. So we, we did this uh, collective call for art, uh, for poster art, um, and we, we structured it into a series of four over uh, four themes over six months. Um, the first being capitalism, the second being uh, imperialism, then we had neoliberalism, and then hybrid war. The idea was just to give a call, speci specifically artists or cultural workers linked to movements, to see how they were in, in interpreting or representing these key concepts in the times of pandemic. And we, we kind of left the last theme for the last because hybrid war is not a, it's not a as widely known a term. Like these are core terms that we live, like people live in their daily lives. I mean, you, you work with uh, uh, precarious and undocumented and immigrants in Europe, you know, like, living under capitalism, living under neoliberalism is just a fact of life. You know, you feel it in your skin every time you try to go into a school or go into a hospital, this is, or access, you know, an institution of any kind. So it was a kind of way of asking and inviting people to come in and interpret um, the, the world we're living in this moment. And we got fantastic um, responses. I think in the end, over the four exhibitions, we had over 160 artists from 30 countries, um, and, and I have to say, most people were first time, you know, they said they felt inspired in this moment that, okay, I'll, whether it's picking up a pen and pencil or trying out digital platform, whatever it was to express the reality, there was a hunger and a, a demand for it. So um, if anyone wants to check that out, it's on the antiimperialistweek.org. Uh, it's actually in English, Spanish, and Arabic. So you get to enjoy the exhibition in, in three languages as well. That's great. And we're going to share the links as well so people can be redirected there. I, I want to pick up on something you said about this bottle of ideas uh, or on an idea level, but also it made me think about this, um, the need for a post-capitalist uh, behavior as well, right? How do we not only sort of like battle on an ideal, ideological, philosophical, intellectual level, but also how can we move into a different kind of behavior that actually creates a different kind of lexicon um, for us to actually be able to put more accurate words to the struggle, more accurate feelings, emotions. Um, can we transfer to, to the others that are not necessarily um, dealing with the same struggles, but perhaps are allies uh, in one way or another? So. I wonder um, how was your your experience when it come to 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 the lexicon, to the new grammar of this of these uh, collective bodies? Um, did you realize some kind of new um, new inputs, new um, energies, uh, and of course a new a new set of um, of a new a new vocabulary that was attached to these to these uh, current uh, challenges that we're living in? I mean. That's absolutely. I mean, I actually mentioned hybrid war, but we I didn't go into it much is that that's um, 
That's a very complicated word. Like it was when you're trying to explain, you know, create new words or new lexicon um, across geographies, borders, languages, you know, every, uh, just historical experiences. Um, we, I think it was a kind of collective process to use this, this um, art making as a way to clarify to each other, how is um, hybrid war felt? So how do we understand hybrid war? You, you know, um, you know, we gave across some resources, some, you know, even some links to readings here, some, you know, basic descriptions to kind of stimulate some thinking. But, you know, a lot of times warfare, um, especially across the global south, happens now not with tanks and bombs, though it still does. But it's actually with other forms. It's about um, blockades and economic sanctions like we see in Cuba and Venezuela. Or, you know, it's media warfare. It's actually fake news. It's on the social media. It's actually ways of, you know, inciting color revolutions in different places to try to install regime changes. It's a, a much more sophisticated and multi-pronged kind of assault, you know, on, on yes, uh, sovereignty of, of, of nations or, or, or people's independence. So that being said, um, if you uh, if anyone gets a chance to look through that hybrid war exhibition specifically, I would highly recommend it because we have people artists uh, coming from Venezuela trying to explain to us through imagery. I mean, most of this, most of the images don't have much text, you know, how, how they're experiencing the blockades um, as a, as a reality of hybrid war experience there. We have a submission also from, from Hong Kong and some of the ways that, you know, the U S funding of some of the protest groups has been happening and how media has been used um, to talk about that issue. Uh, we have right now uh, in Brazil, um, which lived through uh, a coup in the recent years, how, how did the forces of, you know, right-wing evangelical uh, Christians team up with, you know, the right-wing media to help overthrow um, an elected government, which is Dilma's government at the time. So this was definitely a point of how we clarify these things. Some of them are literal, but some of them are much more, let's say, perceived, felt, um, uh, kinds of experiences. And one of the things that we did, because there was a kind of very internationalist curatorial group too, coming from uh, all the regions around the world, uh, that we did a kind of collective um, writing process to try to tease out common themes. And that's something we can share a link to as well. Common themes we're seeing to try to clarify the thinking, you know? So one of the things, you know, we, we tried to say, okay, hybrid war is also about the hybrid forms. So in the representation, but also how the, the, what are the, what are the forms that hybrid war takes? Like I was just mentioning to you. And then we, we try to clarify um, some other ideas. There's a lot of imagery around, you know, the, the, the monsters kind of seething around and be above and between the spaces we are. And, and it was a quite a, the whole process was about developing a lexicon collectively um, across otherwise unknown, you know, to each other, like experiences and realities. So it was pretty, pretty interesting. Hmm. That's, that's indeed very interesting. And I wonder, uh, because you've been able to process a big amount of, um, a, a big amount, a big diversity on the aesthetics that are sort of like representative of different struggles around the world um, for different communities, for different groups, for different nations, and um, and for different artists as well. Because just recently, I was I was reading an article um, uh, with Mackenzie Work, and he was saying like the the. The realists, the most realist people are the utopians, the utopianist ones. 
in the sense that he was saying the exercise of reimagining our daily life to reimagine our world is the most realistic exercise we can actually have because it's it in a way involves the desire, the dream, the the motivation to actually get to live that world in the near future and to create that world together. Um, and of course, it, it, that quote, in a way, it has uh, um, in its it deep in its nature. Uh, I, I read it as an internationalist, and so I was wondering how um, uh, how do you see the um, the for coming future future for all these different. Uh, groups uh, for all these different movements, do you think they will be able to realize the utopia in a way? I'm putting I'm putting it in my own words, right? You haven't defined it as a utopia, but let's say are we are we capable in the in the um, in the short midterm to actually articulate um, an internationalist movement like the one we have in the 60s and the 70s? If I recall well, yeah, I think that will be the question in a way. I mean, I, I think. At the risk of sounding um, idealistic, but I think it's the idea of utopia that must drive us, you know, and whatever you can turn your rage, anger, um, despair has to be turned into some form of hope that is constructive in the process, you know, that is about uh, building, building uh, collective power, you know, building people power. Um, so even though it's interesting, you know, the using this example of these exhibition series, I mean, they're, they're descriptions of a world that is, um, it's, it's a description of a reality that's being lived under these pretty evil forces of oppression, you know? And so we're also trying to find maps, you know, ways out of this, but it's driven by the idea of a utopia. I mean, in terms of, let's say you can call it socialism, you could call it around um, many different things, but it's a world where people are more equal and living, not being exploited. And where also like planet human beings uh, together are not being collectively exploited uh, one class over another, one um, race over another, et cetera. Um, but I think that's at the core of even just the tricontinental's mission, like to be in the um, battle of ideas is not, just a counter to uh, what is existing, but it's also a propositional about what is possible. Um, and one of the aspects that I think we try to do that, especially with um, artwork, uh, art department work, is to do a lot of uh, historical kind of recovery of artistic movements, not only of the 60s, 70s sort of national liberation moment that still is a kind of shining beacon or, or, or place that we learn from and draw inspiration from, uh, but also because there are lessons that we know these uh, sort of erased histories can can help guide us and, and teach us to be better. Um, before going into uh, just an example, I want to bring to you it's uh, this week right now is the uh, the technically the end of the Paris Commune that happened 150 years ago. Um, and right now we did um, an exhibition that just came out uh, separate. It was with a, a group of uh, publishers that are putting together a book about the Paris Commune. Uh, in It's incredible. It's uh, 27 publishers in 18 languages are and 15 countries are publishing a book about the Paris Commune on the 150th anniversary. And why I'm bringing it up is because it, it the decision um, to publish it was not on the first day, of the Paris Commune, which is usually remembered on March 8th, but actually on the May 28th, so in three days, uh, on the end, the supposed defeat of the Paris Commune. But for us, I mean, thinking about the question of utopia is that, um, and actually Marx wrote about it, uh, is that 
every supposed defeat in the in the kind of revolutionary processes and the uprisings of people is seen as a lesson for the working class. It's a way you must remember that history and take that history and use it as fuel for the struggles to come. And so it's like from the ashes is actually the many kinds of revolutionary processes that came after. And we can even see if we look into, you know, from the Chinese revolution to, you know, the kind of revolutionary movements of the 60s and 70s, it has been an undying spirit kind of linked to that moment of workers seizing the city in Paris in 1871. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. I think I just went a roundabout way. But something about utopia, finding history to find our utopia, I think it's all in there. I don't see them as um, contradictory. And I guess I still remain a hopeful person despite my political views. In spite or because of? I think it's actually because of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And where can we find this contribution? Uh, it's a massive, uh, multi-layer contribution. That's uh, great. Well, there'll be more on the tricontinental.org. We did a kind of call for art for the cover, um, and we also received quite a lot of art for that. So we just put it on the website, and the book will come out in three days. Also, you can check it out on the tricontinental.org. Um, interestingly, as an aside about this book, it was really interesting and going into this history a bit more is, I don't know if you've heard about um, the Federation of Artists that were created during the Paris Commune. I have not. Please tell us about that. Yeah, I didn't know either. I didn't know either. So then in the middle of this, it's only a 72 day, only, I shouldn't say only, to seize a state for 72 days is pretty awesome. And there were 47 painters and sculptors and architects. And at that point, they had a lot of decorative artists. They actually came together and created a... Um, uh, a federation of artists. They have a manifesto that we pub we're publishing in the book. So that 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 manifesto is going to be republished in all these languages, which has never been made available before. Um, and um, the painter uh, Gustave Courbet, which some people might remember from if they ever looked at like Art History 101 books, um, he's a socialist painter. He was actually he was like a radical communard, you know, seize the state type of guy. And he was elected the Minister of Culture. For the Federation. Yeah, yeah he was the okay. Minister of Culture of the, the, the Paris Commune, of like the worker state. So they had amazing debates already at that point in the middle of the barricades, you know, like in the, in the middle of being like <laughs> defending the, the barricades. They're discussing what should we do about museums? What should we do about patrimony, like heritage? What should we do about how do we socialize culture for and by the workers? You know, how do we inherit uh, what the bourgeois society has left culturally and 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 reframe it in, in for the people? I mean, in the middle of the barricades, I found that, I mean, it's amazing. They knew the battle of ideas was not just about barricades, but also, you know, building future worlds through culture. It's a great parallel. I think, like, I think it talks to the practices of sure livelihoods that are rooted in this um, at times outdated cultural traditions, right? And I mean, it informs the way uh, museums, the way cultural centers institute, the way they actually are in many ways, the gatekeepers of that tradition. And, um, and I, I found that um, uh, when talking about this, it's, it's definitely interesting to, to think about, about worker co-ops, mutual aid networks, all these different alternative models of organizing uh, in order to kind of like deinstitutionalize the traditional without sort of like regarding it to a, you know, um, secondary or like 
isolated uh, position within society, but like building of that legacy, because I feel like when you talk about tricontinental on the projects you, you've been involved with, uh, there's, um, there's almost like a homage to history. And, and it's not only like a search for history, but it's almost like you also let history to find you in a way by, by, you know, bringing all these people together with all these crazy, amazing minds and uh, artistic input. And so I wonder um, if you could tell us a little bit more uh, from your take, what is the, what is the potential? What's the role of the artist in society? Uh, and in particular within the, within the, the projects that Tricontinental uh, initiate? I mean, I, there's, so going back to sort of history and what we can learn and sort of how we understand um, the role of artists, cultural workers today, there's two kinds of um, more deeper studies that we did, um, uh, one around the Cuban revolutionary process and then another around Indonesia, which is probably lesser known, uh, especially outside of this region, mostly because they never, never managed to kind of seize state power, let's say. But in these, you know, sometimes, um, you know, coming from people's struggles, revolutionary struggles, almost seems like there isn't a, a theorizing about or there is an idea that they weren't theorizing that the work they were doing in the process of that struggle it includes like what is the role of artists? What is the role of culture? In the Indonesian example, there's a group that's, I mean, blew my mind when I first heard about it. It was called Lekra. It was sort of associated with the Communist Party, but it was a much broader cultural front. Um, and at its height in 1965, um, it had 200,000 members in hundreds of branches, you know, in the fishing villages, in the countryside, in the cities, in the factories, in the communities, you know, like it's just a, a mass-based organization. And they were very much trying to understand as they were doing the practice of what is their role, you know, um, how do they uh, interpret the history of colonization and all the cultural kind of products, you know, the, the consequences of that. We are made up of all that history as well as, you know, people coming from colonized places, like, absolutely. What do you do with that? What do you do with the folk tradition, the historical tradition? There's no idea of going through a pre-colonial kind of romantic past. We are, uh, we're already, um, a mixture of the history that has happened. And then what do you do with all these new socialist kind of revolution ideas? And in that, there's a line that they developed as one of their principles, which was that you must combine the individual, uh, oh, individual creativity with the wisdom of the masses. I mean, this, I think, for me, has been a kind of nice distillation of how we reconcile, um, yeah, the individual person and individual contribution, including such as an artist, could be an intellectual, could be anyone in their role in a, a massive movement, um, but based on and based from the demands, the aspirations, the dreams, the desires of the masses of the people. Um, and I mean, I think in terms of one of the roles is to bring that creativity elevate, let's say, amplify those messages is one of the key roles. And I think I learned it from that experience. Um, and from the Cuban experience, I mean, they did amazing things. I think many of us still look towards uh, Cuban poster design after, the, you know, uh, the revolution as something phenomenal. Uh, it's ahead of its time. I mean, uh, at the same time, when you look at how that happened is because, well, it's a history of also, 
you know, colonialism, imperialism is that U.S. had been using the island as basically a, a, a testing ground to test, you know, the early phases, you know, the Mad Men that like series that from a bunch of years ago, those Madison Avenue advertising agencies were basically like preying on Cuba to figure out how you do, uh, you know, advertising market research, how do you sell cigarettes to children, et cetera. So they developed um, a huge capacity around mass media communication. You have really skilled artists, you have skilled, you know, script writers, video makers, you know, it was mass communication throughout. But when the revolution came, they had a different purpose. It's not to sell products of empire and capital. You're actually there. It's like, how do I, you know, promote a literacy program in the countryside um, when people are not literate? And you create, you know, from that experience, I think we learned the role of artists is to also like it's another way of amplifying messages. Um, but it actually, um, let's say, validates the the useful things that we inherit, whether it's working in like bougie advertising agencies or, you know, um, uh, the kinds of, you know, things you learn through through colonization that are useful for for communication. That's on another side. But anyways, those are a couple of things I'd say bringing from historical experiences. Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, I think it talks about this this uh, need for social reciprocity and, and an ecological equilibrium, right? And and also we can we start seeing some tendencies uh, of cyber socialism, right? Uh, almost like the new technologies are allowing a kind of socialism to start emerging. Um, and I, I'm, I'm both excited and preoccupied about it. Uh, because of course the new technologies are uh, amazing tools, especially for social movements, uh, activists, uh, people that are um, on the cultural front trying to really articulate uh, a much wider um, intense uh, effort to, to create an internationalist network. Um, or at least I can see it within the arts and culture field. I can see how um, how artists are really craving for um, a connection that is not the same as the one we have experienced uh, or we're currently still experiencing under globalization, right? It's almost like globalization has been put because of COVID. It's been paused. Nonetheless, I still feel that um, the way we we network, the way we come together is still based on the principles of globalization rather than on the principles of internationalism. Uh, and, and so I think like these new technologies are a way to kind of like counter these mass media technologies used, you know, by infamous um, um, governments, agents, uh, yeah, etc. So I wonder if you think this, uh, this new emergence, this new possibility of creating micro communities that are interconnected on on a digital virtual level digital virtual sphere and if that exercise could actually help us to go into the grounds of reality and the physicality of our you know material life and and let's say there is a counterpart to that to every technology right and i i see an everyday life like right when projects using the rhetorics of the left to actually, you know, monetize uh, um, human relationships, to actually commodify 
uh, human relationships, which are um, probably more than ever before uh, a need, a, a really intrinsic, uh, important need in times of a pandemic where our, you know, we have social distancing and quarantines and lockdowns. And, and so the need for the other is more present than ever before. Uh, and nonetheless, we're still allowing the mass media and the right-wing projects to actually use the lexicon of the left to uh, provide a false, almost uh, hologramic <laughs> uh, notion of coming together or of togetherness. Um, and, and they're very good at, at packing, it, packing it, right? And they're very good at that. So I wonder if, um, you know, what's, what's the force of these, uh, of these, uh, of the posters? What's the force of, of these new aesthetics, of these new statements, uh, to counter these other, um, tendencies that are, are eventually going to crash? No, I mean, I think, I think this is, um, this is key of our times, you know, I think we're still, can't imagine the post-pandemic world and how the nature of human relationships, how the nature of work, how the nature of making things has been utterly transformed from here on in. And in the consequence of just absolutely relying on these technologies just to be able to build human connections and maintain, you know, some some aspect of the, you know, human community, we probably traded off a lot more than we we would like to, but it's hard to come back from that. I mean, this is one of the things, like, as much as we're excited about getting to actually know, I mean, we wouldn't have been able to, if this was a physical exhibitions or whatever, been as bold to connect with artists from 30 countries, um, resources or otherwise. Um, we probably wouldn't have had um, figured out some ways to do translation and connect, you know, someone, you know, we did some events with someone from Malaysia, with someone from, you know, uh, Palestine, with someone from Mexico in one conversation. So there is real exchange of, of information and, and content that, that gets, but there's a big limitation to that as well. Um, you know, of course, we're making images that are just like other things that we we kind of swipe through on our cell phones, like we're just competing for that same airspace. But one of the things that was a really nice story about exactly what you were saying about how that kind of virtual interaction can come back onto the back to the ground, because ultimately that is where that is what makes a difference. We, we actually still believe in human communities uh, and that's where and that cannot be replaced by a virtual worlds, um, is that when when we had put some of these posters out there, you know, let it be published, but also encouraging. Like we wanted organizations to use them. We wanted people to you know, bring them back to the streets. And there were some physical exhibitions, one in Spain, one in Malaysia that I mentioned that were done. There were also more spontaneous moments. I got um I got a WhatsApp message from a friend from South Africa and and he sent me that um that there was uh, a, an in-person uh, celebration that was happening for the 15th anniversary of an organization. It's called the Shack Dwellers Movement or Abathlali Bazamunjondolo in South Africa. Um, one of the biggest social movements in South Africa, really amazing. It's about you know, dignity um, and fighting for housing and land uh, for uh, unhoused um, uh, people. And, and so they were celebrating their first occupation and 15 years 
in the middle of a pandemic and doing it in a way that is safe. She, he just sent me some pictures of the decorations that people had done in the, you know, the, the shacks in, in the townships of South Africa. And here we have pictures from the exhibition that people had, you know, decided that represented, you know, their struggles. And in there, there was an image from uh, a woman from Lebanon. There was an image from Mexico. There was an image from Brazil. There was an image from Malaysia, Indonesia. So that was so beautiful. I mean, the, that those images found their way and resonated with people and felt, you know, that they were sufficient or accurately and, or something emotive um, about them that they wanted to print and post them into in the shacks for their celebration. And what was so special and one of the pictures uh, is that um, we got a submission from uh, an artist named Judy Seidman, who um, has an amazing history. She uh, was part of actually the armed struggle uh, for uh, South African liberation and part of the grouping of people who formed a, a, a cultural group called Medu Arts Ensemble that were exiled in Botswana, which is a border country from South Africa. And there they formed an arts collective and, and gathered hundreds of people um, to their uh, to to their uh, conferences and their events and really trying to become a hub of how to get uh, cultural content in and out and fighting against um, uh, apartheid, but also fighting for socialism. So uh, she contributed, we connected with her as Tri-Continental a few, a couple years ago, and it's been amazing. She's continued to contribute her work in the townships, particularly working with women since then. And she has submitted to every single one of the exhibitions. So somehow, unbeknownst to her or, or even the people there, had found that poster and brought it back to South Africa and to the townships. So it was just so beautiful. I mean, it was the work she was doing in the 80s in the underground trying to get, I mean, at that point it was illegal to get posters in and out. Like and the story she was telling me was like, okay, there's soldiers coming in, um, you know, uh, armed struggle soldiers, they smuggle in books and posters. They're literally waiting for the screen prints to dry. And then in the middle of the night, get their handlers and send it across the border because that's the power of an image. And somehow 40 years later, that image gets, you know, selected, printed and posted on the wall of a, of a shack dweller in South Africa. So that's unbelievable. We need the base, is what I'm saying. We need the real, the tangible, the tactile too. That friction is, is really interesting. And also, uh, you know, new socially constructed visions of, of value. Do you think we're too well behaved? Are we behaving too well for this? Um, I have the feeling that, um, and that's a little bit what I was referring to this post capitalist behavior, right? Like, um, do you think there is a collective enjoyment by facing risk together? I, I, I mean, enjoyment maybe is not the right word for it, but I feel like art uh, in a way creates those moments of enjoyment um, despite the struggle. And sometimes even because of the struggle, it makes people come together and share um, stories, anecdotes, uh, you know, smuggling tactics. Um, there is, um, much needed um, feeling of interconnectedness that it, it also comes with uh, with sharing a roadmap for coming together. So um, based on your experience that all these different groups you have uh, encountered, you have seen, I, I, I would ask you if, if you will be interested in, in giving a few tips to the people that, to the artists out there who want to come together 
And how, how do you start? How do you actually collectivize your struggle? How do you actually, and even if there is no specific struggle in mind, how do you still try to form community? How do you still insist on, on the coming together and, and to exchange creativity and, you know, community generated projects? Is it only through struggle that we can collectivize? I wonder. I guess for me, it's so hard for me to see creation of art and struggle as separate. Maybe that's just the path of life or the the kind of decisions uh, I've made. Um, but I mean, I just remember I, you know, back in the days of doing more immigrant rights organizing when I lived in Canada. Um, you know, the, the joy of organizing a creative protest doesn't feel all that different from the collectivity that you get to organize, let's say, this kinds of uh, political exhibitions or um, knowing that it, it can, let's say, it has a kind of purpose that can be felt like this, you know, kind of touching story I shared with you. Like it, it has a material um, feeling, uh, it touches the hearts and minds of people that is part of it, you know. There is a joy that we're looking for. So in some ways, it's the joy of organizing through the process of organizing, which the struggle can take on many forms. And actually just reminded me of this nice quote, Wally Sirote, who's um, a Black consciousness poet from South Africa, who was also one of the members of that Medu group that exiled in Botswana. He was... uh, he, one of the quotes he says, and I love it, is, need I remind you that armed struggle is an act of love? You know, our conditions not, is not necessarily calling for armed struggle in most of our context. But I think for them in that experience, the, the work of doing art together, I mean, they had, they had, um, they had uh, let's say, sections that were doing film to dramatic arts to, you know, painting to graphic arts to literature. Um, it was quite a broad section of how they organized, but they didn't see that as a separate work of, you know, the fighting for uh, liberation or even armed struggle. It's the process of organizing people um, and building up the kinds of uh, dignity, confidence around a set of shared principles, shared vision, shared utopia uh, that we're, you know, moving towards. So um, I don't know if that answers your question a bit, but I think those things don't feel so contrary to me. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of joy in all the, in the process of it all. Without the joy, I think we'd all be like literally dead. Yeah. I mean, it's interchangeable with hope, I guess, also. <laughs> so yeah, we will be nothing. We will definitely nothing. Um, and it will be, it just reminded me of, uh, uh, there is an article by Emmanuel Braga. It's called, uh, dream, the dream of income and the nightmare of the end of work. And, and it, it, it does refers to this, uh, uh, precarious conditions that many artists are, are not only artists, but many people are facing at the moment. Uh, and even before the pandemic, but you know, it has been intensified lately. Um, and, and he says, like, labor um, is no longer able to provide uh, income for all. And, and so it is almost an invitation to, 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 uh, to, to, to mute, almost like a mutualism, almost like uh, solidarity practices are, will have to sustain our human and economic relationships. Um, and I think artists can articulate that front in a way. And so I'm really happy to have hear about all the different projects that you're working with Tricontinental at the moment. I'm really looking forward for uh, to read that contribution 
It's going to be a lot of reading, uh, but I really, really look forward to it. I know you have to move on, so we can call the day, but it's been such a great pleasure to have you here, and hopefully we will have another chance to to talk again and uh, and, and and see how things have developed over over time um, on the solidarity front for for artists and, and and cultural workers. Thank you, thank you. And now, as we wrap up this episode, we leave you with a live audio feed from outside the UDI building. Listen closely to the frequencies of immigration bureaucracy.